Ukraine wants tanks. NATO countries have tanks, but they insist it's not that simple. The lead starts right now. No deal. The failed talks as the U.S. tries to push Germany to give some Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine while holding back the American-made Abrams model. What's the difference in Can Ukraine get some tanks before Russia ramps up its war in the spring? Plus, a new investigation opened in New Mexico into a Republican candidate's campaign possibly being laced with money from fentanyl sales just days after his arrest, accused of plotting to shoot the homes of his Democratic rivals. And Julia Roberts made her a household name coming up. The real Aaron Brockovich is here on a mission to help military families. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead in what appears to be a standoff between the United States and Germany when it comes to giving more heavy weapons to Ukraine. More than 50 countries and organizations met at Ramstein Air Base in Germany earlier today. It's a group known as the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. It's led by America's top military leaders. But the group failed to come to an agreement on one of Ukraine's most pressing requests whether Germany will send some of its Leopard 2 tanks to Ukrainian forces. These tanks are seen as a crucial modern weapon. There are nearly 2,000 of them spread across Europe right now. 2,000. Allies such as Poland have them and are willing to send some of them to Ukraine. But export laws require Poland to get permission from Germany where the tanks were made. Permission that has not yet come from the German government. Now, Germany did announced today an aid package for Ukraine worth more than a billion dollars. But as CNN's Alex Marquardt reports for us right now, despite that generous offer, thanks, but no tanks. Time remains a Russian weapon. We have to speed up. A desperate plea today from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to defense officials from the U.S. and allied countries, meeting in Germany to discuss further lethal aid for Ukraine. Based upon the progress that we've made today, I'm confident that Ukraine's partners from around the globe are determined to meet this moment. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin hosting the meeting on the heels of the U.S. announcing a new massive $2.5 billion aid package. But no progress in breaking a critical logjam, convincing a reluctant Germany to allow transfers of its coveted Leopard 2 tanks. We're not really hesitating. We are just uh, very carefully in balance and all the pros and contras. Germany has said it doesn't want to be alone, but the United Kingdom has committed to sending their tanks. Other European countries are also eagerly awaiting German permission to send leopards that they hold. They've not made a decision on the provision of the leopard tanks. What we're really focused on is making sure that Ukraine has the capability Uh, that it needs to be successful right now. Germany and the U.S. are now denying that Germany is requiring American M1 Abrams tanks be sent alongside German tanks. U.S. officials have been arguing for the Leopard, saying the Abrams makes little sense for Ukraine. It's a gas-guzzling beast 
that is complex to operate and difficult to maintain. This is a tank that requires jet fuel, whereas the Leopard and the um, the Challenger, uh, it's a different engine. They require diesel. It's um, a little bit easier to maintain. They can maneuver across large portions of territory before they need to refuel. While Germany's Leopard 2 is a modern heavy tank with a large number already in Europe, it's easier to support and be trained on with an ability to accurately hit moving targets with its night vision and laser rangefinders. Secretary Austin emphasized a window of opportunity before Russia begins a counteroffensive. The main current fighting in Ukraine has been around the city of Bakhmut, where Ukrainian forces have been battling Russia's Wagner mercenary group, whose power has grown. And today, the U.S. designated Wagner a transnational criminal organization. It will open up additional uh, avenues for us to continue to uh, not only sanction Wagner and uh, put more squeeze on their uh, ability to do business around the world, but will assist others in doing the same. The White House also released new satellite imagery showing Russian rail cars heading into North Korea, then being filled up and sent back with rockets and missiles destined for use by Wagner. And the White House believes that Wagner will continue to receive weapons from North Korea. And next week, the group, as well as its support network, according to the White House, will be hit with more U.S. sanctions. Now, Wagner has been recruiting huge numbers of fighters from Russian prisons, Jake, sending them to the front to die as, as cannon fodder. The U.S. believes that of the 50,000 Wagner mercenaries that are currently in Ukraine, 80% of them were recruited from prisons and are convicts. Jake. Says a lot. Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. While the Ukrainian military waits to see how the diplomatic tank standoff plays out, its forces are forging ahead, fighting Putin's army with the equipment and battle capabilities that they have right now. CNN's Fred Plykin was north of Kyiv today and witnessed Ukrainian troops preparing for a possible large-scale Russian invasion. Preparing to defend against a second gigantic attack, even as they're already under assault by Russia. Ukrainian units held large-scale drills to prepare for bigger battles to come. The head of Ukraine's Joint Forces Command tells me. We need to know what exactly to prepare the forces for and how they should be prepared, he says. That's why this is so important. We're in the Chernobyl exclusion zone, site of the worst nuclear disaster in history. Ukraine's special forces also practicing urban combat in the abandoned buildings. The U.S. and its allies believe the Russians could mount a massive offensive once the spring comes. That's why the Ukrainians are getting their forces ready, even as they're already fighting the Russians on several fronts in this country. The Ukrainians say that to win, they need more modern Western weapons, especially main battle tanks. In terms of quality, of course, there's a big difference, the general says, because the fire control systems of Western equipment are far superior to Russian weapons. As the battles in places like Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine remain brutal and casualties mount, Ukraine's leadership says it's grateful for the massive military aid announced at the Rammstein meeting. But Kiev is disappointed Germany still hasn't signed off on sending Leopard 2 main battle tanks, which would be key to help them turn the tide, a top presidential advisor tells me. 
Потому что наши ребята не будут уходить. Our guys won't leave the battlefield even if they aren't provided with new equipment, he says, but more of them will die. This must stop. We want our people to have a better chance of saving their own lives. The Ukrainians say the new aid announced Friday will go a long way to help them beat Russia back, and Mikhailo Podolyak says he hopes the U.S. and its allies will keep weapons flowing in the long run. I think our allies have the perfect understanding of the price we're paying, he says, that it's very important for Russia to lose. They understand the nature of this war, the nature of Russia, and why it is impossible to negotiate with them. The Ukrainians say they need to grasp the initiative before the Russians can recover from their losses, and they're gearing up for what could be a brutal spring. But Jake, the Ukrainians also say there is a whole other facet to this as well. They say they're having increasing problems getting spare parts for their Soviet-era tanks and ammunition as well. So on the one hand, those modern Western tanks would be for better capabilities, but it's also about staying in the fight, especially as that Russian offensive looms, Jake. All right, Fred Plantkin in Kiev, Ukraine. Thanks so much. Let's talk about this with William Cohen, former Republican senator from Maine and Defense Secretary in the Clinton administration. Uh, Secretary Cohen, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with the tank standoff. Uh, Germany's defense minister says there are both good and bad reasons for giving Ukraine the Leopard 2 tanks that they're desperately asking for. Why do you think Germany is so hesitant here? Well, I think part of it is political uh, and certainly emotional on the part of the uh, the Germans. And we don't give Germany enough credit for what they've uh, been doing and the amount they're contributing, both in material and uh, equipment and now money. Uh, so I think that with anyone who's trying to divide uh, Germany and separate them out as being not a good ally, they're wrong. Germany is a great ally. The problem is that they've got a history. And they have another issue, not only their history, but I don't think they want to be seen as being the country that's triggering any kind of escalation. And if there's going to be an escalation, they want all of us uh, to be involved in that. And so I don't think it's unreasonable for them to say, we'll put our our, our best uh, main battle tank there, but we want you to have uh, yours there as well. Even though the capabilities are quite different, even though it doesn't necessarily translate into more effectiveness, symbolically, it's really important. I hope that they're able to work this out. Uh, Secretary of Defense Austin has said we're still working it, and I hope that they do it quickly because time is of the essence. But I would say whatever it takes to get the leopards there, if it takes some uh, Abrams to go, I would say do it. So if so, if you were Secretary of Defense right now, you would say send two or three Abrams tanks over there if that's what the German. I mean, if that's what the Germans need as cover, um, even if the. I mean, they really need. A lot. It sounds like the Ukrainians are saying we need dozens, if not hundreds, of the Leopard 2, mm-hmm. which are more agile sure. than the Abrams. Uh, they're more agile. They're more uh, modern. Uh, they use uh, a fuel uh, which is uh, uh, easily obtained. They need uh, the uh, the fuel from the uh, Abrams. Uh, uh, it's basically jet fuel they have to have. You have a, a whole supply chain problem with the Abrams. But I would say under the circumstances, is if uh, what they need are tanks, and we can help get the Germans to say it's okay if you're in it, we're in it. I think let's the most important thing is saving Ukraine from Russian uh, extermination as such. What the what the Russians are doing, they are engaged not only in they, what they call denazification, 
depopulation of Ukraine. They are annihilating the people of Ukraine. So anything we can do to prevent more of that slaughter from taking place, we ought to do it. And if it's a question, if we're providing something that's not that combat effective under the circumstances, let's do it anyway so we can get uh, the Germans to, uh, to satisfy their local political problems, which are real, and we ought to address them. If Ukraine does not get these tanks and the other heavy weaponry that they're requesting, like long-range missiles, how, how do you see their fight against the Russians going forward in the next few months, especially if there's a spring offensive? Well, it's a war of attrition at this particular point, and what the Russians are doing are trying to just destroy the will, obviously, but the, the means of survival in terms of heat, electricity, water, food, energy, etc., so what they're trying to do is wear down uh, the Ukrainians. And if this is a war of attrition, then we have to uh, give whatever the Ukrainians need to take the uh, battle against the Russians and to defeat them on the ground. And the notion that the Russians are saying, well, if we lose a, on the ground on a conventional basis, we may use nuclear weapons. Well, they said that before, and that's something we have to be concerned about. But you can't have Russia wrap itself in a, in a nuclear um, jacket uh, and threaten to blow itself up in the rest of the world. That's simply uh, uh, not going to happen, in my opinion. But we can't have the world standing by, terrified that uh, they're putting on this vest and saying we're going to blow not only Ukraine up, but much of the world. Well, that's just it. The Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs issued the warning about the increased supply of weapons to the West, saying, quote, we regard all this as an open provocative incitement by the West and an increase in the stakes in the conflict, which will inevitably lead to an increase in casualties and a, and a dangerous escalation. Do you think there's an actual red line here for Russia? Because they've been saying yeah. that sort of thing from the very beginning. And every time the U.S. or the mm -hmm. West gets incrementally involved, every time they say, well, that's the line, that's the line. But do you think there's an actual line? Uh, there may be. Uh, and we can't uh, you know, uh, not take that into account. But if we're going to allow the Russians to say, if we don't win, the world loses. And that's what they're saying to us and to the rest of uh, Western uh, democracies and much of the world. There are 54 countries uh, in uh, Ramstein right now. That's more than NATO. That's a lot more than NATO. The, the world is now looking at this in terms of the Russians have engaged in an act uh, a war crime by invading a neutral country. And now they're saying if we don't take possession of our, quote, little beauty, then we're going to blow the world up. We can't accept that. And we have to tell the Russians there'll be a, a, a terrible penalty that you will pay the day you ever think about using a nuclear weapon uh, in this battle or any other. Uh, but we can't afford to have an extortion being uh, uh, waged against the United States saying either you let us win allow all of these Ukrainians to be slaughtered day after day, or else we might pull uh, our nuclear button out and uh, destroy uh, much of Europe and uh, of, whether India, China, all of the Middle East. Uh, there's no end to it once you start down the nuclear uh, uh, path. So I think we have to tell them, uh, get out of uh, Ukraine. You violated the law. Uh, you are causing uh, world economic problems, and you're putting us on a path of uh, open conflict with the rest of the world, now's the time to settle this, and that would be get out of uh, Ukraine. And I think we have to take, give them, give mm -hmm. the Ukrainians what they need to defeat the Russians on the ground and do it as quickly as we can. Because the longer this goes on, the longer there's a war of attrition, 
Ukrainians end up on the losing side of that. Yeah. Former Secretary of Defense William Cohen, thank you so much for your time, sir. Appreciate it. Right now in Washington, crowds are filling the streets in the first March for Life since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Anti-abortion activists say they're preparing for a, quote, absolutely crazy year. What are they preparing for? But first, the questions about money in a Republican candidate's House legislation, uh, legislation campaign, State House, prompting a new investigation just days after his arrest. Stay with us. In our national lead now, the New Mexico Attorney General today opened an investigation into the campaign finances of that failed Republican state legislature candidate who was also accused of a revenge plot targeting Democratic officials. Albuquerque police say Solomon Pena, who lost his race in November, decidedly gave gunmen addresses and paid them cash to shoot at Democratic officials to injure or kill them. And now a source tells CNN investigators are looking into the possibility Pena's campaign was partly funded by laundered drug money. CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller joins us. John, this is a crazy story. Uh, walk us through what raised authorities' suspicions and, and how do they think this even worked? Well, this starts on our end with uh, Paul Murphy, the CNN reporter, going through the campaign contributions of uh, Solomon Pena when he was the candidate for the State House, And he notices that the accused gunman who was arrested with the two guns, the pile of fentanyl and the, and the large amount of cash in the candidate's car 38 minutes after one of the shootings is also the number one contributor to the campaign. In fact, if you bundle him and the contribution that his mother is listed as making, they paid for half of the contributions to the, to the Pena campaign. Interestingly, his mother says, I never contributed to the campaign, and I don't know where that came from. So with a guy who's sitting with $15,000 worth of fentanyl in the car, according to police, the question is, was that the source of the money that a person who claims to be unemployed and homeless was sending to the campaign coffers? So what's, what's next for Pena uh, in his encounter with law? Well... Jake, it's what's next for Pena is um, he's been charged in this case, and those will go into pretrial hearings. But what's really next for Pena is there's three co-conspirators who have not yet been charged in this case, but are described in the court papers as being among the gunmen who were hired and paid to shoot up the homes of these Democratic um, leaders that, uh, that Pena had visited the homes of prior. So... The, the scenario is one of them is already talking, according to our sources. And I think uh, others will have the opportunity to do that as they dig for the answers about where did the money come from? How were the shooters paid? Um, how, does this cons- how do the mechanics of this conspiracy work for a candidate for a state office who had to go to court in order to get on the ballot because he was a convicted felon from having been uh, arrested in a smash-and-grab gang that used to drive cars through the windows of electronic stores and steal high-end items. Like I said, it's kind of a bad episode of uh, Breaking Bad meets Better Call Saul meets some other show that hasn't been invented yet. Yeah, I mean, next time, he honestly, he should shoot for U.S. Congress instead of the state legislature. They, he might find more, uh, more protection there. John Miller, appreciate it. Thanks so much. Hollywood made a movie about her investigation into toxic water. The real Erin Brockovich, however, is going to join me next, and she's taking on yet another contamination case, this time involving military families. Stay with us. 
By the way, we had that water brought in special for you folks. Came from Welland Hinkley. Julia Roberts helped make her a household name. Almost 23 years later, the real-life Erin Brockovich is still on a mission for environmental justice. Her latest fight is today's buried leave. That's what we call stories that we don't think are getting enough attention. Brockovich is trying to help military families who are victim to the toxic water at Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. Discoveries appear to date back to the early 1980s, but families were not widely notified about the contaminated water there for another 17 years. We're joined now by the real-life Aaron Brockovich, founder of the Brockovich Report newsletter, and she joins us with retired Marine Master Sergeant Jerry Ensminger, who lost his nine-year-old daughter Janie in 1985 after she was diagnosed with leukemia. Um, Aaron, I, I want to start with you. Just last August, President Biden signed the PACT Act, which allowed in part people exposed to the contaminated water at Camp Lejeune to file new lawsuits. Um, But you're finding it's not that simple, right? No, it's definitely not that simple. And yes, the Camp Lejeune Justice Act was a part and is a part of the PACT Act. And it's I want people to understand about Camp Lejeune, which is a marine base here in North Carolina. And for decades, the Marines and their families were being exposed to and drinking highly toxic water. They have been suffering the loss of their children, their spouses, multiple different diseases, conditions, and cancers. This has been one of the most egregious, largest toxic contaminated water issues we've ever seen In this country. And so being included in part of the PACT Act, which actually, Jake, I thought was a great moment, Congress passing an act put into bill that would be doing the right thing for these Marines and their families and those who had been poisoned. To find out here we are today, six months later, where original claims were being dismissed. Mm. These claims are being filed with lawsuits, which are now being dismissed, and they're being told to refile. Yeah. So it's like a circle here with not well intentions of expeditiously filing these claims and doing what is right by these Marines and those family members. Justice delayed is justice denied, as they say. Uh, Jerry, first of all, I know I speak for all my viewers and my staff and my team here. Our hearts uh, go out to you about your daughter. You filed, as I understand it, a wrongful death claim for your daughter in 2002. That's more than 20 years ago. Uh, And now the Pentagon says they want you to file a brand new claim, start the process all over again. Do I have that right? That's correct. Uh, uh, Well, to to make this story complete, they came out in 2019 and dismissed all of the claims that they had uh, uh, on file at that time that And that was 4,400 claims. Now, when the president signed this into law on the 10th of August, and in the law, it says there's no provisions in there for us to have to refile these cases, these claims, these administrative claims. So the Navy went to the Department of Justice and they went to the court of the Eastern District of of North Carolina to the judges 
and that and filed a motion for them to dismiss all the legacy claims. That's what they're called. And that's, that's incredible. You know, the, the you know, and the court went along with it, but they in the spirit of what Congress and the president had in mind about this has been delayed long enough because of all the lies uh, and and hiding uh, of information and documents. They said this has gone on long enough. They wanted this resolved and they wanted to resolve be resolved quickly. Well, it's time, Jake, that the executive branch step up and 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 put the hammer down on these federal bureaucracies that are are now doing everything in their power to slow this up. Yeah, absolutely. And this has been a very long fight for you. It's been 37 years since your sweet daughter Janie died. Uh, you were at the White House when Biden signed the PACT Act back in August. In 2012, President Obama signed a bill named after your daughter. That extended VA medical care to Camp Lejeune families. All this red tape and bureaucracy, it, it, it just... As somebody who served and sacrificed for the United States, it must be just so maddening, given the fact that, like, you've done so much for your country and then your country returns the favor by fighting you. I know. And what makes it even more, even stronger disappointment for me is to see the conduct of the leadership of the United States Marine Corps, who actually put their signatures on lists of lies that they came out with about this issue. I mean, it, it's, it's mind boggling. And I, you know, I served as a drill instructor at Paris Island for two and a half years. And I trained new Marines over 2000 of them. And to see the upper echelon of leadership conduct themselves the way the Marine Corps has conducted themselves in this has been repulsive. Yeah, it's a disgrace. Uh, and Aaron, obviously, uh, Julia Roberts and the film Aaron Brockovich put you on the map after your fight for families exposed to toxic water in Hinkley, California. We just showed a little clip of that. Uh, and since then, we've seen so many high-profile cases in Flint, Michigan, and Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, the attorney commercials run nonstop for Camp Lejeune. Is there a commonality in these cases? Oh, 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 my gosh. Yes. You know, lack of leadership. Uh, nobody implementing, the, you know, appropriate executive decisions, as Jerry hit upon, and a cover up. I mean, every single time. And in Camp Lejeune, they've known for decades that people were being exposed to this poison. The children, they knew in Flint what was happening before it happened. They knew that there was going to be a failure in Jackson, Mississippi before it happened. So we're just covering these things up. We're concealing them and just thinking it's okay to go along and let these families be poisoned, come down with cancer, their children die, and what, we're going to be none the wiser? This just has to stop, Jake, across the board. And I'm telling you here on this Camp Lejeune, these Marines, these families, this is... This is enough. I'm a military mom. These men and women came home to their families alive to be poisoned on their own soil. I don't possibly know what we're thinking anymore. This behavior has to stop. And as long as I'm around, I'm going to do my best to hold them accountable for what they've said they will do to make it right. And as long as I'm around, I'm going to help you and Master Sergeant uh, Jerry Enspinger 
tell your story. So stay in touch. We'll continue to have your have, Jake, have you back. Yes, please. Yeah, Jake. Uh, Mike Partain and I put together a timeline of uh, of events. It's fifty six pages long, but it's the most comprehensive. Uh, piece of information for people to go to and learn about this issue. And I would like for them to go to camplejunejustice.com and they can read all about it. Camplejunejustice.com. Thanks to both of you. Really, That is the place to go. Uh, uh, Jake, thank you so much. Make sure you spell Lejeune correctly, people, when you're doing that. It's it's not how it sounds exactly. Thank you so much. We'll have you back. Coming up, new information just in about the investigation into the leak of the Supreme Court opinion that overturned Roe v. Wade. Stay with us. In our national lead, anti-abortion activists from around the United States are here in Washington, D.C. today for the annual March for Life. This is their first gathering since the U.S. Supreme Court threw out the 50-year-old Roe v. Wade decision that had legalized abortion in 1973. CNN's Brian Todd has been out among the demonstrators all day. Uh, Brian, what's the mood and, and what are their priorities now? Well, Jake, the priorities now are kind of shifting the agenda, shifting tactics in the movement, because as much as this was a celebration today of the fact that Roe versus Wade was overturned last June, they realize that this is kind of a pivotal moment in the uh, anti-abortion movement. As this march was getting underway, I spoke to Jeannie Mancini, the president of the March for Life. Take a listen. Is this a celebration? Is this a shift in tactics or policy? Why do this now after such a big victory? Well, all of the above. We've become the largest, longest running human rights demonstration worldwide. And so we don't end because the human rights abuse of abortion is still very much happening in the United States. And we talked to a lot of marchers themselves who said that this is a time when they have to change tactics to get their agenda across. Going to the states, maybe holding marches like this in all 50 states and doing things at the grassroots level, uh, you know, as as kind of, you know, locally as knocking on doors across the country to push their agenda. And one lady telling me that her focus is going to be on trying to stop the flow of what she called abortion, the the flood, the the flood of what she called abortion pills uh, coming into the country since Roe versus Wade was overturned. So they're really kind of turning things to a local and very uh, grassroots level at this point. Brian Todd, thanks. Uh, Just into CNN, the Supreme Court marshal is now clarifying that she did, in fact, talk to the Supreme Court justices as part of her investigation into the leak of the Dobbs draft opinion, which ultimately overturned Roe v. Wade. Her investigation could not figure out who did actually leak it. CNN Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic is here with more. So she says she talked to them, but... Were these formal investiga- formal interviews or just talking? Uh, she suggests that they were not as formal as with the justices. Let me read what she said, at least part of it, Jake. This is Gail Curley, who's the marshal of the Supreme Court, who had conducted the investigation. During the course of the investigation, I spoke with each of the justices several on multiple occasions. The justices actively cooperated. Uh, she says that they uh, asked questions in Uh, of their own, and they answered hers. She said she followed up with all credible leads, none of which implicated the justices or their spouses. On this basis, she said, I do not believe that it was necessary to ask the justices to sign sworn affidavits. Now, I should tell you that for the law clerks who were interviewed by Marshall 
Gail Cur- Curley. They were asked to sign affidavits. Other employees, some uh, 80-some employees, actually closer to 90-some employees, were actually interviewed more formally as far as yesterday's report suggested. I do have to say that this statement, which is the first we've gotten about any kind of interactions that the marshal had had with the individual justices, followed a lot of questions that were raised yesterday when the Supreme Court put out its report and showed, frankly, many shortcomings in its security and its protocols for confidentiality. Yeah, you and I were raising some of those questions on this very uh, table uh, yesterday. But I have to point out, the U.S. Marshal reports to the Supreme Court justices, right? I mean, you can't... There are critics who are saying, I mean, God bless her, but you can't investigate people that you work for, and that's the inherent problem with this kind of investigation. She's not asking Justice Smith to sign an affidavit or the the power imbalance is just too big. No, that's right. That's right. That's the reality of this. Chief Justice John Roberts oversees the entire thing. And I think what she wanted to convey today is that at least there were some conversations with the justices, but by virtue of the sorts of terms that she used in this report, it does sound more casual, less formal, less penetrating than it was for the other, the employees. And those were the people who were focused on in yesterday's report. Yeah, that's why there's some in Congress who want to make leaking a draft opinion a federal crime. So it will be someone other than the marshal who's in charge of it. John Biskupic, thanks so much. Thanks. Coming up next, the backyard backup plan to the rising cost of eggs, but is this plan all it's cracked up to be? Back with our money lead now. Today, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned of a global financial crisis as soon as June if the U.S. Congress fails to raise the debt ceiling. That's the limit set by Congress on how much the federal government can borrow to pay its bills. We're not talking about new spending here. This is money the U.S. government currently owes. Secretary Yellen tells CNN's Christiana Mampour, if the debt limit is not raised, the consequences could be felt by all Americans. We would certainly experience at a minimum a downgrading of our debt. If that happened, our borrowing costs would increase. A failure to make payments that are due, whether it's to bondholders or to Social Security recipients or to our military, would um, undoubtedly cause a recession in the U.S. economy. Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill need to come to an agreement to raise the debt limit. But right now, neither side seems open to negotiations. The soaring cost of eggs at the grocery store is anecdotally prompting more Americans to start raising chickens in their own backyards, an investment some families say is saving them money in the long run. But as CNN's Gabe Cohen reports, some experts are quite skeptical about such savings and caution would-be hen owners not to count their chickens before they hatch. Every morning, Cassidy O'Donnell fetches a feast from her Pennsylvania yard. Drop that one in there. (laughs) Fresh eggs from eight chickens, an idea she hatched last spring as food prices surged. We had seen that the price of eggs had gone up quite a bit, and now they've gotten even more expensive. So grateful for the decision that we made a year ago. The price of eggs is up a rotten 60 percent in a year, (laughs) largely driven by a deadly avian flu outbreak across 47 states that's left some store shelves empty. Come on inspiring more Americans to invest in backyard chickens, hoping to save some scratch. What we're seeing right now is just a wake-up call for a lot of our customers. 
Mike Higman owns My Pet Chicken, which sells chicks and supplies for backyard flocks. He says business is booming, up 80% this month compared to a year ago. We're looking at record numbers because people are seeing the prices of eggs going up in stores and that they're out of stock. There are people that are concerned with what things are going to look like for food prices and food availability over the next 12 months. In here. Rene Ruiz built this coop last May and purchased three chickens, with eight more just hatched, concerned with the cost of feeding his family of five. I just don't think it's sustainable for people to continue to just pay what they're being asked to pay in the supermarket without having an alternative, and that's what this is. But his hens still haven't laid their first eggs, and he's already spent more than $1,000 on this project. Do you think this will be worth it in the long run as opposed to just buying eggs? Yes, it's going to pay off not only after my first year, but just long term if I continue this process. But some experts are skeptical. You think most families won't actually end up saving money? No, the numbers don't really work out. Bridget McCray is a poultry specialist that teaches chicken owners how to raise small flocks. And she's warning them not to wing it, as costs like feed, housing, equipment, electricity and time, she says, can drive up the average cost of backyard eggs to more than $20 a dozen. The reality is that you're going to spend more money on your chickens at home than you are on eggs at the grocery store. But Cassidy O'Donnell says her hens are already fluffing the family's bottom line. Come eat. Laying roughly eight dozen eggs each month, which could cost more than $40 in a store. Instead, she's spending about 20 bucks on chicken feed. So we're saving a lot having them in the backyard right now. And she expects roughly 150 eggs a month once the weather warms up and says they'll try to sell what they can't eat. That's like $70 in eggs at the store right now. So, yeah, we'll see a return on it. And, Jake, there is some good news this week. The Department of Agriculture says egg prices appear to be dropping at least a little bit. But there are still major supply concerns and, of course, concerns about that avian flu that even small flock owners need to watch out for. Jake. All right, Gabe Cohen, thanks so much. Coming up, how an Instagram post led to the arrest of three active duty U.S. Marines who work in intelligence and are now accused of participating in the January 6th Capitol riot. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a schoolyard battle in Florida after the governor's office blocks a new advanced placement course for high schoolers on African-American studies. State officials claim the course is of little educational value and violates Governor DeSantis's new Stop Woke Act. How? Plus, three active duty Marines who work in intelligence have been arrested in connection with the January 6th insurrection, and one was reportedly pushing for a second civil war. And leading this hour, the Biden administration officially designating the Russian mercenary Wagner Group as a transnational criminal organization. The ruthless Wagner Group has been operating in Ukraine since the war began, and a CNN investigation found they recruit criminals and drug users directly from Russian prisons. Wagner leaders Yevgeny Prigozhin is known as Putin's chef. Not only have his restaurants and catering company hosted dinners attended by Putin and other world leaders, but Prigozhin is also known for serving up corpses through his work with the Wagner Group that he founded in 2014. Sources tell CNN, Wagner wants soldiers who are drunk or high all the time in order to carry out brutal executions, beheadings, and assaults. CNN's Katie Bo Lillis joins us now. And Katie Bo, this announcement comes after the U.S. released newly declassified photos 
of Russian rail cars traveling back and forth to North Korea. Explain the significance of these rail cars. Yeah, Jake, so these images that the administration released today uh, reportedly show uh, rail cars full of artillery ammunition provided by North Korea to the Wagner Group, which for months has been fighting this just punishing battle, this very, very um, difficult back and forth, brutal fight for the city of Bakhmut in Ukraine. And the reason that this matters, Jake, is because the fight for Bakhmut, as has become the case with much of the war in Ukraine, has become a real war of attrition uh, that military and intelligence officials increasingly say is really likely to turn on access to artillery ammunition. Which side is able to sustain its supply of artillery ammunition the longest. Uh, one senior intel- mil- or, sorry, senior Western intelligence official that I spoke to earlier today said in Bakhmut alone, the two sides are expending up to multiple thousands of rounds of ammunition a day, which is just staggering. And so what North Korea is doing here is really helping Wagner and by extension the Russian side perpetuate this, this fight in Bakhmut that our sources say has left this part of Ukraine looking like Verdun in World War I. Katie Bo, will the weapons and ammunition from North Korea make make a difference in Ukraine? I, not necessarily from a broader strategic perspective. Um, the fight in, in Bakhmut specifically uh, is not seen, even if Russia is able to successfully take Bakhmut, is not seen as uh, something that's going to change the overall trajectory of the war. But what does matter, and the reason why U.S. and Western officials are concerned, is the possibility that North Korea may continue uh, to try to provide these kinds of supplies to send these shipments um, to the Wagner Group, to, to Russia. And that's something that, that officials are going to want to do everything that they possibly can to try to to try to stop. And so the hope is with this terrorism designation that it's going to open the door to sanctions that are going to make it more difficult for the Wagner Group to do business internationally. And, and remember, the Wagner Group doesn't just operate inside Ukraine. They have operations across Africa as well as in Syria. So this designation does have the potential to impact Russian operations beyond the borders of Ukraine, Jake. All right, Katie Bo, thanks so much. This move and news regarding the Wagner Group comes at the same time that the United States and other NATO allies are pushing Germany to provide Ukraine with key tanks. As CNN's Pentagon correspondent Oren Lieberman reports, so far Germany is resisting the request. Weapons you have provided. In the halls of Rammstein Air Force Base, the U.S. and more than 50 allies stood united on every issue but one. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin heaping praise on countries for sending more powerful and advanced weapons to Ukraine as the war nears its one-year mark. The U.S. with its own $2.5 billion package that includes Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, striker combat vehicles, and much more. What's missing, though, is at the top of Ukraine's wish list. We will still have to fight for the supply of modern tanks, but every day we make it more obvious there is no alternative to making this decision. Germany refuses to sign off on sending its Leopard tanks to Ukraine. Despite U.S. pressure and behind-the-scenes wrangling, Berlin won't budge. There are good reasons for the delivery, and there are good reasons against it. We cannot all say today when a decision will be made, nor what that decision on the Leopard tanks will be. On the winter battlefield, Ukraine wants modern tanks to retake territory against dug-in Russian defensive lines. It's a more powerful weapon, for a more brutal 
battle. The U.S. insists its M1 Abrams tank is the wrong fit. The M1 Abrams is a heavy, fuel-guzzling vehicle that runs primarily on jet fuel, making it harder to operate and maintain in Ukraine. And with few operators in Europe, spare parts are hard to come by. Instead, the U.S. and others have been pressuring Germany for its Leopard tanks. The German-made Leopard runs on diesel and is already used by about a dozen other countries in Europe, making it easier to get spare parts and perhaps more tanks to Ukraine. But Germany has yet to make a decision. Even so, the defense secretary defended Berlin while pushing everyone to contribute more to Ukraine's war effort. Is Germany doing enough in order to show real leadership in Europe? Yes. But we can all do more, and uh, you know, the United States and every other member of the UDC can, can do more. More may be coming, whether Germany approves it or not. On the sidelines at Ramstein Air Base, 15 countries that use Leopards met about equipping Ukraine with the tanks. Poland has been the most vocal, threatening to send the tanks even without German approval, a rift in an alliance that stands otherwise together. Over my 43 years in uniform, uh, this is the most unified I've ever seen NATO. That he is optimistic that Germany will give its approval soon. He points out it is only the new German defense minister's second day on the job. Of course, as we heard from Ukraine, Jake, time is something that is not on Ukraine's side at the moment. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Evelyn Farkas. She's the executive director of the McCain Institute and the former deputy assistant secretary of defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. So let's start with this new uh, designation of the Wagner Group. Uh, This comes at at the same time that calls are growing louder for the Biden administration to take the leap and designate Russia as a state sponsor of terror, Russia itself, not just the Wagner group. You were the top uh, Pentagon official for Ukraine during the Obama administration. What's the downside of designating Russia a state sponsor of terror? I mean, honestly, I think it may make it harder for us to deal with them diplomatically in certain fora. But at this point, I don't see a downside. Jake, I mean, they've been violating international law left, right and center. They've been, you know, prosecuting this horrible phase of this war with human rights violations. Again, they also the Russian government, frankly, is responsible for what Wagner's doing. So if they're a terrorist organization, well, the Russian government is supporting them and directing them. So I, I think it may really be at this point a distinction without a difference. I think they designated Wagner a multinational criminal enterprise or something like that, not a terrorist. Is that, is that the same thing as designating it as a terrorist group? It's probably close. I mean, I haven't looked at what the distinction is, but it certainly makes it hard for other countries to work with Wagner. Mm. And as you mentioned, or in your earlier coverage, you had the fact that Wagner Group is working not just in, in Ukraine, they work in the Central African yeah. Republic, you know, countries all over the world as mercenaries. I also want to get your reaction to the newly declassified uh, photos of Russian rail cars going to and from North Korea. What does this suggest to you? Is it, is it desperation? Is it nefariousness? Is it, what, what do you think? I mean, it's clearly desperation. Do you really think Russia would be getting weapons from North Korea if it had an option to get them from South Korea? Um, you know, it, it, Russia is doing what it can to resupply. They clearly have problems getting the, the equipment that they need and the, and the parts that they need. And maybe they want to show the world that they're not completely isolated, but it, it doesn't it doesn't show strength, if you if you ask me. Do, I mean, do the, are the North Koreans known for being able to make weapons that are any good? I know we're concerned about their potential nuclear weapons program and their rockets that they fire. But I mean, is that like bargain basement kind of country to go to to get to get weapons? Well, I think probably the way to look at it is the way that we look at the Russian men in uniform right now. They may not be high quality. They may not be trained, 
but they're still lethal. And so at the end of the day, of course, we don't want North Korea providing any weapons to Russia. And I'm sure, you know, we'll try to do what we can to prevent it. There are sanctions on North Korea. Russia obviously is in violation of them. So, you know, it's but the reality is that they are weapons. So it's not it's not desirable. Speaking of weapons, let's go back to the to the tank dispute. Um, A Western official thought maybe Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz is wrestling with a, quote, moral issue uh, when it comes to the visual of German tanks fighting uh, Russia in Ukraine. Why, Why do you think Germany is so reluctant to do this? I mean, the German government is a coalition government, Jake. And Olaf Scholz is the head of the Social Democratic Party. They have a long history of what they call understanding Russia, cooperating with Russia. And so I think he's dealing with a lot of members of his political party, as well as the German population, who are very hesitant to go into a situation that they deem risky. The reality is, though, that if you don't stand up to Vladimir Putin, if you aren't strong in the face of this Russian aggression, you are actually inviting Vladimir Putin to to potentially put your your national security at risk. So unfortunately, it's a misunderstanding to think that you have to cooperate or show some sort of softness towards Russia. It's quite the opposite. And the Green Party, which is also in the coalition, they very much understand this. The Conservatives, which is Angela Merkel's party, they have also come around to the understanding that they have to be tough with Russia. Um, You recently told The New York Times, quote, without Crimea, the whole thing falls apart, saying that that the U.S. has to support uh, Ukraine's attempt to get Crimea back, which Russia obviously illegally annexed in 2014. What's the best way for the U.S. to help Ukraine get Crimea back into its country? Provide longer range artillery, provide those attackums, a, a particular system that will allow the Ukrainians to actually hit targets from Ukrainian territory into, well, Crimea is Ukrainian territory, but into heavily guarded Russian, Russian reinforced territory in Ukraine. And what I meant by that was that if, if the Russians don't control Crimea, if they no longer control Crimea, it makes it harder for them to control areas that they control in the south and the east of Ukraine, other parts of Ukraine in the Donbass and in the south. All right, Evelyn Farkas, good to see you as Thanks, always. Jake. Thanks so Thanks. much for being here. CNN's Ben Wiedemann reports for us now from the eastern front of Ukraine where scrappy Wagner mercenaries are breathing down the necks of Ukrainian soldiers, soldiers that badly need heavy weaponry, just the kind for now that Germany is refusing to send. In the trenches outside Bakhmut, a mortar crew is at work, hoping to repel Russian forces on the verge of encircling the city. Drone footage shows the impact of their rounds on enemy positions. The refrain among these troops, we need more. All speaks about tanks, tanks, tanks. Yes, of course, tanks. It's most powerful for our time machines on the field. But now it's 21st century. We need not only tanks, we need aviation. Around Bakhmut, slowly and steadily, the Russians are gaining ground. Thursday, Evgeny Prigozhin, head of the Wagner Group, claimed his troops, and only his troops, took the village of Klishivka, just south of the city. In a dugout, this officer, nicknamed Koleso, explains Wagner's tactics. 
They attack at night. The first wave is less trained, but we have to use lots of ammunition against them, he says. The next wave of troops has night vision, is better trained and better equipped. Tactics seemingly from a different day and age, inflicting mounting casualties on Ukrainian forces. This soldier was critically wounded when his armored personnel carrier was struck by Russian fire. Much of Bakhmut is now a ghost town, the sound of shelling, the danger constant. We're inside this tunnel inside Bakhmut, taking cover because there's incoming rounds just nearby. The few civilians left resigned to their fate. People die from strikes everywhere in Kyiv and Dnipro, says Valentina. If that's your destiny, death will reach you anywhere. On a hill above the city, a Soviet-era T-72 tank fires into the distance. Its sound and fury, perhaps not enough to turn the tide. And as that report shows, the situation in Bakhmut and other parts of eastern Ukraine is dire. And of course, Ukrainian officials are concerned that when the weather improves, the Russians could launch a massive multi-front spring offensive. So all of this squabbling and confusion among the so-called friends of Ukraine over what to supply the country at this its time of need couldn't be at a worse time. Jake? All right, Ben Wiedemann in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Two former members of the Trump administration are facing off. Is this a preview of what's to come in a potential 2024 Republican primary race for the presidency? Then, just moments ago, police officers and paramedics appeared in court facing charges tied to the death of a black man who was stopped by police while walking home and then given what turned out to be a fatal dose of ketamine. We're back with our politics lead. The Justice Department is signaling it will not comply with the document requests from one of the House committees investigating the Biden classified document situation. The department sent a letter to the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, saying protecting the integrity of its own investigation might outweigh the committee's oversight duties. Let's bring in CNN chief congressional correspondent Manu Raju and Manu. The Justice Department, they're they're not saying they're going to refuse to turn over any information, but it doesn't seem like there's going to be a lot of cooperation. Yeah, this is setting the stage for what could be a very contentious two years between Republicans who now lead the House Judiciary Committee, who now control the House and the Justice Department over a number of oversight requests. Chairman Jim Jordan, when he was in the minority in the last Congress, sent a number of oversight requests asking for a lot of information from the Justice Department. He was routinely ignored on a lot of those requests. Then he became the incoming chairman. He reiterated those requests. They have not yet been responded to. Earlier this week, he sent another letter saying, saying the stonewalling must stop, threatening to subpoena them if he does not get information on a whole wide range of issues relating from the Drug Enforcement Agency as well as some ongoing 
investigations, including the, the, the appointment of the special counsel that looked into the Biden classified documents situation, the, president handled, the president's handling of those documents, as well as the situation in Mar-a-Lago, the special counsel that was named to look at, into that as well. He wants all communications, all information related to that. The Justice Department is signaling that is likely not going to happen. Information related to those matters are part of an, its investigative work, saying in this letter that any oversight request must be weighed against the department's interest in protecting the integrity of its work. Now, the, Jim Jordan himself has not officially responded to this yet, but his uh, committee did put out a tweet criticizing the department, saying that, what, questioning whether it was too scared to cooperate, saying in that tweet, as you can see in your screen, why is DOJ scared to cooperate with our investigations? Now, Jake, this is reminiscent of what happened when Democrats took control of the House in 2019 and in 2020, when the Trump administration was in power. The Judiciary Committee at the time sending letter after letter, subpoena after subpoena, getting stonewalled by the Trump administration. Back and forth happened for last for the, much of the past two years. They did not get a lot of information. It led to some court battles, some drawn-out court fights, and a lot of contentious battles between the two sides. We'll see if that happens here or if the two sides can reach any sort of accommodation. But, Jake, this is a sign that the Republicans plan to press ahead and the administration may not be willing to cooperate with a lot of the demands from the incoming Republican majority. All right, Manu Raju, thank you so much. Turning now to our national lead, where two paramedics and three police officers involved in that 2019 death of 23-year-old Elijah McClain were arraigned in Colorado today. All five were indicted on 2021 charges of manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide. McClain, as you may recall, was walking home when he was approached by police who were following a suspicious person call, according to the indictment. After a struggle with police, paramedics then sedated McLean with a dosage of ketamine that was more than his body could handle. He suffered a heart attack and was declared brain dead three days later. CNN's Lucy Kafanov is outside the courtroom in Brighton, Colorado. Lucy, what happened during today's arraignment? Well, Jake, after months of delays, we finally saw all five defendants in court today. The three police officers and the two paramedics each pled not guilty to all of the charges. Three separate trials have been set uh, for this summer. Now, keep in mind that the exact cause of death is in question here. Uh, when police apprehended McLean that August summer evening in 2019, one of the first responding officers, Nathan Woodyard, tried to restrain McLean uh, with a chokehold to the neck that has since been banned, causing uh, the young man to briefly lose consciousness. The other two police officers who had been on site uh, helped keep McLean uh, restrained on the ground. The paramedics uh, were then called in. They injected that uh, dose of ketamine, which later on it turned out was a lot stronger than what was necessary for his body weight. Uh, initially, the autopsy report listed the cause of death as undetermined, but that changed later following new evidence to uh, effectively say that the cause of death was caused by complications from that ketamine injection, as well uh, as following the, re- uh, following the restraint, pardon me, the manner of death remains undetermined. Uh, the various defendants, though, in these upcoming in in the months leading up to today have been essentially pointing fingers at one another in terms of who is to blame for Elijah's death. And so as a result of that this week, the judge ruled that there will be three separate trials. Uh, The former officer, uh, Nathan Woodyard, who performed those chokeholds, will be tried by himself. That trial is scheduled for uh, September 18th. The two other officers, Randy Rodema and Jason Rosenblatt, will be tried together. Their trial is scheduled for July 11th. And the two paramedics in this case, Randy, uh, pardon me, Peter Kachiniak and Jeremy Cooper will also be tried 
together jury selections for their trial begins August 7th, Jake. Why did it take so long to get to this point? Yeah, I mean, this is a death that initially, frankly, slipped through the cracks. Um, the local GA DA didn't even take the case initially, saying that he didn't effectively have enough evidence to, to do anything about this. It actually took statewide protests here in Colorado following the killing of George Floyd for this to gain national attention. And that is when the Colorado Attorney General picked up this case, uh, impaneled a secret grand jury. We then had the change in the autopsy report results following that grand jury report, which remains sealed. That was this September. And then we had months of legal delays as these defendants try to push for separate trials, Jake. All right, Lucy Kafanov in Brighton, Colorado for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, there's a new AP course, AP course in African-American studies. It covers topics such as the Haitian Revolution and black feminism uh, and the Black Panther movement. But this course will not be taught in Florida after Governor Ron DeSantis's administration blocked the class saying it lacks educational value and breaks the law we will we just got some new information from the desantis administration about why they made that move and that's next internationally the administration of florida republican governor ron desantis in florida is blocking a new advanced placement class for high school students on african-american studies the DeSantis administration claims the course is of little educational value and breaks Florida law. One section of the course's syllabus says students will read the works of author Eduardo Bonilla Silva, a sociologist who views systemic racism as a problem in the United States. And as CNN's Sarah Seidner reports, the rejection comes after DeSantis signed a bill last year restricting how race is taught in schools as he weighs a run for president. Florida is where woke goes to die. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's administration has blocked a new advanced placement course on African-American studies for high school students. In a letter this month to the college board, the nonprofit organization that oversees AP coursework, the Florida Department of Education said the course is inexplicably contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. While the letter did not specify what the agency found objectionable, a spokesman for DeSantis said the course, quote, leaves large ambiguous gaps that can be filled with additional ideological material, which we will not allow. Let me be clear. There's no room uh, in our classrooms for things like critical race theory, teaching kids to hate their country and to hate each other is not worth one red cent of taxpayer money. The rejection of the course follows efforts by DeSantis to overhaul Florida's educational curriculum to limit teaching about critical race theory, though there's little evidence it's taught in K-12 schools. But in 2021, the state enacted a law that banned teaching the concept, which explores the history of systematic racism in the United States and its continued impacts. Last year, DeSantis also signed a bill restricting how schools can talk about race with students. And I think what you see now with the rise of this woke ideology uh, is an attempt to really delegitimize our history and to delegitimize our institutions. 
As DeSantis weighs a political 2024 presidential bid, his latest move signals a willingness by the rising GOP star to continue to engage in clashes over hot-button cultural issues, a strategy that has boosted his standing among conservatives. We will fight the woke in our schools. We will never, ever surrender to the woke agenda. An apparent syllabus for the class was shared with CNN and runs more than 80 pages and provides a course framework covering a wide range of topics from the empires of Sudan to the Haitian revolution to black feminism. I've been working with this for a couple of years and we have been very careful to be inclusive and it's not just a history course, it includes literature and art and geography and political science, not politics. Lisa Hill is teaching the course now. She heads the history department at Hamden Hall Country Day School in Connecticut. She is baffled by the DeSantis administration's criticism. Do you think this course is teaching CRT? Absolutely not. In fact, that's one of the statements. This is not a CRT course. There's a conflation, um, an idea that this course is CRT but with an AP label, which is incorrect. The course is being offered as a pilot in 60 schools across the country during the 2022-23 school year. It was not immediately clear if Florida even had any schools participating in the pilot program. So our Steve Contorno just got uh, some new information from the DeSantis camp, and it does go over their specific concerns uh, that they found within the AP African-American Studies course that is being piloted right now. There are six different concerns on topics from everything from the movement for black lives to black queer studies uh, to the reparations movement. And when you look at what their concerns are, it is generally the included reading. Uh, And they list the authors that they are concerned about, one of whom is Kimberly Crenshaw, who is known to have written a book on critical race theory. So their concerns are few compared to the number of topics that are there in that syllabus that we were able to obtain. There are 102 topics uh, that are listed in that syllabus, Jake. All right, Sarah Seidner, thanks so much. Uh, Let's discuss, first of all, just to define critical race theory, because I think people talk about it a lot. This is according to Education Week. Critical race theory is an academic concept. It's more than 40 years old. The core idea is that race is a social construct and that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but also something embedded in legal systems and policies. That said, I'm not sure how much critical race theory or CRT is actually in this course. One of the things that I find unusual about this discussion, uh, Abby, is the idea that there are ideas that shouldn't even be taught. I mean, I'm not talking about indoctrinating students to think reparations are owed or think CRT is correct or whatever, but just like the idea that we shouldn't even teach an idea. I I think that is actually what underlines all of this. I mean, I think there's probably a decent argument that parents should have some input in general, I guess, in their children's education. But at the same time, I think a lot of parents would be a little bit uncomfortable with the state saying, I'm going to decide that your child is not going to be introduced to a set of ideas because I don't like those ideas. Uh, And the idea, the point of an AP class is to prepare students to be able to evaluate different ideas and weigh them against each other. But I also think that this falls into a bigger bucket of things, a a long, decades-long 
uh, effort among some people to try to eliminate uh, race and ethnicity studies at the collegiate level, and now that is bleeding into the high school level. And DeSantis is playing into that because it's very convenient for his 2024 run, but I don't think people should be mistaken. This is not something that he just invented yesterday. It's been going on for some time. Well, I mean, I totally agree with that, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's a useful enough instrument for him right now in Florida. I'm not sure how convenient it is going to turn out to be in a 2024 context. But, you know, once you get outside a Florida Republican primary electorate, outside the bubble of the uh, Fox News universe that Ron DeSantis typically lives in, you know, this plays pretty differently with an audience of parents who actually do want their kids exposed to a lot of different ideas and who don't uh, just necessarily take to the idea of state censorship of what's in education. I think the folks who, are, who campaign against wokeism are most effective when they depict the left and cultural elites as trying to control what your kid has access to. And look what Ron DeSantis is doing right now. It's exactly that. I think that's exactly it. I think this has less to do with the substance, um, and it has much more to do with the theater. And the theater here is what really drives base activists on this, partisans, uh, to rally around it, because they just love the idea that their new sort of guy, Ron DeSantis, is sticking it to the education establishment and the teachers' unions, sticking it to the liberal left, taking the fight to them. And to your point about, yeah, this is, could get problematic if you start getting into battleground states and suburbs and how it plays there, but they're only looking, and this is what happens in Republican primaries, any primary, you're only looking about five yards ahead of you. And this is why, they're, this is why it's a big issue. I mean, I w- would you have a problem with uh, uh, kids being, let's say they took a class on capitalism versus communism, or just communism? What is communism? As long as it was taught honestly, right? Right. Like, you know, here, here's what Stalin did. Here's what Castro did, et cetera, et cetera. Would you have a problem with, you know, the works of Karl Marx being read? Well, what we have here is not just extreme rhetoric. We have extreme action. And so for the vast majority of families in Florida, they're going to now have their high schooler have a choice between AP European history, AP Japanese history, but be banned from having AP African-American history. And so that's not necessarily going to stand with the vast majority of families in Florida, let alone the country. I guess the, I guess the issue that, that DeSantis is trying to get at is that this isn't just education, this is indoctrination. They are telling kids, or they would be telling kids to think, reparations are necessary, intersectionality is real, and, and so on. I, I mean, I think that he's going to make that argument, but the reality is, is that the, this whole thing is just about not wanting, uh, you heard Sarah Seidner say it, the, the objections are to the reading list, including an author that they don't like, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, that, I think, is very transparent to people. I, I also think, to Rahini's point, People are not stupid, okay? They understand that when you allow AP European history, AP Japanese history, and then you say, okay, black folks, we're not going to teach your history because we don't like the way that, uh, that you know, we don't like the, the subject matters that are in the curriculum. I think that that is very transparent to people. And I have a lot of questions about beyond Florida, beyond this political moment, whether or not something like this is going to play uh, to a broader American public, they they have kids who are in high school who take AP classes on all kinds of subjects, and AP classes are not mandated right. at all. Uh, so I think people get it, and it, it's just you know only time will tell. By the way, I don't know how many, I think you and I are the only one that have high school kids, but like I have right, I have a so junior in high school. How delighted would you be if your kid read any book? 
I, I, I love it. And by the way, when I was in high school, I loved African-American history. It was one of my favorite classes. This obviously occurs in the context of the 2024 race. Uh, Nikki Haley gave an interview teasing a run for presidency, president, and she seemed to take some shots at, uh, at Donald Trump. Take a look. The survival of America matters, and it's bigger than one person. And when you're looking at the future of America, I think it's time for new generational change. I don't think you need to be 80 years old to go be a leader in D.C. I've never lost a race. I said that then. I still say that now. I'm not going to lose now, but stay tuned. What do you think? Well, the most important thing you can have in a campaign with your message is a contrast message, right, which is why me, not them. And that's exactly what uh, Nikki Haley is doing. New generation. Is is new generation. And also, the last guy lost us the Congress, and he lost his last election. So new generation and somebody who can win versus somebody who lost the Congress, lost his own race, and is older. You know, I think one of the things that's sort of tricky for Nikki Haley in all this is that she's actually been around for a little while now, right? That I'm old enough to remember when she was just a fresh-faced state representative running an uphill (laughs) campaign for governor in 2010. And it's one of the the, the things you can be the victim of your own success at a young age, that she's actually uh, been around for a dozen plus years as a a semi-national figure. So if Republican primary voters are looking to turn the page, see what the the flavor of the month is, I'm not sure that that's really a winning argument for her. But it is a way to get in this sort of passive-aggressive space where you're talking about Donald Trump Without saying you're talking, talking about, about Donald Trump. Trump. So it, not passive-aggressive, aggressive. Uh, Mike Pompeo, a uh, former uh, Secretary of State, um, who's also possibly going to run in 2024. He has a book coming out next week. Uh, and he writes that there was an effort by Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump to have Nikki Haley replace Pence as vice president. And in the book, it says Haley had entered the Oval Office with the president's daughter, Ivanka, and her husband, Jared, who were both senior advisors as best Kelly, uh, John Kelly, the then White House chief of staff, could tell they were presenting a possible Haley for vice president option. Uh, Nikki Haley was asked about that. Here's her response. I never had a conversation with Jared, Ivanka or the president about the vice presidentship. And, you know, what I'll tell you is it's really sad when you're having to go out there and put lies and gossip to sell a book. I will say that I did talk to a White House official from that time who backs Pompeo's version, not necessarily that Nikki Haley had talked about this, but that Jared and Ivanka were definitely pushing her to replace Pence. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the read between the lines. What Pompeo is saying is that they wanted that, basically. Um, I, I I, I think it's interesting that all of these former Trump officials are fighting with each other to go up against the guy that they used to work for. That, I think, is going to be very problematic for many of them because they've all said a lot of very favorable things about Trump. And they're going to have to figure out how to square that with a campaign that's going to have to take him down, frankly. I bet Democrats are really enjoying watching all this. So. Well, there's no question. It, everyone tries to get a private meeting with the president in the Oval Office. There is no doubt about that. But what is what is clear here, um, without being able to fact check it, is that um, they are trying to really take aim at her credibility. Be, and, and this is very much in the context of this 2024 discussion. Thanks one, uh, one and all for being here. And don't forget, you can catch Abby on Inside Politics Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern right here on CNN. If you didn't get enough just now, there's more coming on Sunday. Three active duty Marines who work in intelligence are under arrest in connection with the January 6th insurrection. Why they claim they were at the Capitol. Stick around. Three active-duty U.S. Marines who work in intelligence have been arrested for allegedly storming the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. 
One of the accused uh, is even, it's even said that he supports a second civil war, according to recently unsealed court documents. CNN and Sarah Murray following all of this for us. Sarah, who are these three Marines and what are the specific charges against them? Well, one of them is Corporal Micah Coomer. The other one is Sergeant Joshua Abate and then Sergeant Dodge Dale Hellinan. So they're facing a number of charges, including disorderly conduct in a Capitol building. And these court documents are interesting because, you know, the FBI caught on to Coomer because he was posting mes- or photos on his Instagram page of him at the Capitol. You know, they're in his messages. He's saying that it's time for a boogaloo or he's waiting for one. And he explains that that's uh, the second civil war that he's talking about. This other guy, Joshua Abate, you know, he is in an interview for his security clearance, and he tells them in this interview that he was at the Capitol with two buddies. But when it uh, became clear that people were portraying negatively the riot, he no longer wanted to tell people that he was there. This is what all came out in these court documents, Jake. They work in intelligence? These guys? What does the Marine Corps have to say about this? So the Marine Corps says that they are aware of this investigation. They're aware of these allegations. They say they're fully cooperating with appropriate authorities in support of the investigation. We should note that these three men have not yet entered a plea uh, when it comes to their conduct. All right. Curiouser and curiouser. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. What former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has to say about her husband Paul's recovery after that brutal attack? That's next. In our politics lead, Congresswoman, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, is speaking with CNN's Chris Wallace about a number of things, including her husband Paul's recovery. Paul, as you might remember, was seriously injured last October when a deranged assailant broke into the then Speaker's home in San Francisco and attacked Paul Pelosi with a hammer. This is uh, a difficult subject to bring up, but people are want to know, how's your husband Paul doing after that vicious attack in October? He's doing okay. It's going to take a little while for him to be back to normal. Uh, I feel very sad about it for because of what happened, but also more sad because the person was searching for me and my dear husband, who's not even that political, actually, paid, paid the price. He's been out a bit because the doctor said he has to have something to look forward to. And, um, and so, again... One day at a time. But thank I'm just going to press asking. this a little. We <laughs> see him out in public, but when I've talked to you, when I've talked to your daughter, when I've talked to one of your granddaughters, you all keep using the expression long haul. <laughs> is it physical? Is it emotional? Is it cognitive? No. When, what's the long haul mean in terms of recovery? Anyone who's had a head injury knows that um, you have to be very careful. You have to be careful about movement. You have to be careful about light. You have to be careful about sound. And um, it just takes a while, probably another three or four months, according to the doctors, for him to be really himself. The former speaker also talked with Chris about the chaos in the House of Representatives during the extended battle for speaker. As a political pro watching that, what did you think? Well, I was sad for the institution. They should have had their act together. They should have gotten it done. And uh, it was sad. It was nothing to be amused by or laugh at or anything. It was sad for the institution. So what would you have done if you were McCarthy and you got to the first day of the actual session and you didn't have the votes? I would have had the votes. I knew I had the votes. And you can see more of my colleague Chris Wallace's interview with Speaker Pelosi, former Speaker Pelosi, this Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern 
on CNN. The, the full interview is available, available right now on HBO Max. Coming up Sunday on State of the Union with my colleague Dana Bash, Democratic Senators Dick Durbin and Joe Manchin, along with Republican Congressman Michael McCall. That's Sunday morning at 9 Eastern and again at noon here on CNN. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN if you ever miss an episode of the show. You can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts all two hours just sitting there like a delicious plum. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room right after this quick break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.